is all I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dudes. Wow. All right. Hey, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 and verse 22. And uh, let's read this story together. Mark 8, verse 22. And this is God's Word. And Jesus and his disciples came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I had a friend in high school named Bob, and Bob was blind, and Bob was... uh, I don't think he was fully albino, but he, he was obviously affected and uh, obviously blind. He had a stick with a cane on it, with, uh, with the red tip on it and everything, and he was obviously blind from birth. And um, he became a friend of mine, and there were about four of us that led him around the high school all the time, and his parents would just drop him off in the front lobby. And um, he would stand in the front lobby until one of his friends showed up, and uh, there was a little way that you just w- walked up to him. It was always on his left side, and you always put your elbow out like this, exactly like this. Not this way, not this way. In fact, he would correct you. Uh, it was always this way, and as soon as he knew you were there, you'd walk up behind him and say, hey, it's Jim. He just, his hand would reach out, and he would grab it. And uh, it was this kind of early on illustration of how he was not able to Uh, function in this world getting around on his own. He had to have help from the outside. And I've got another vivid illustration of that. Um, If you would have your knees replaced, uh, that would, that would be a challenge to you. I mean, it's, it's not something you can, is Judy in here too? I'm trying to point at everybody who's had them, but there's, it's not something you can do alone. I mean, you should see all the contraptions I put all over the house. I mean, I had a rail on the bed and I had a pole in the bedroom, you know, for the, anyway, there's a, it was a, it was a, it really, it really is an odd-looking uh, feature in our bedroom right now. It, it goes floor to ceiling. Um, I had all these little things and little handles and, and rails, and I put them all over the house. And uh, but even with that, I mean, you just have no idea what it's like to to have your wife hold your feet and go, no, 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 not that slower. I mean, you're just like just you're just traumatized. You know, you cannot do it alone without help from the outside. And uh, we've got a story here about a guy who was uh, blind and Jesus healed him. And you've got, so it's a physical healing, right, that you see in this gospel. But it's a physical healing. It really did happen. Jesus really did show compassion. But it is also a spiritual illustration. It's a physical thing that happened, but it's got a spiritual illustration. And our main idea that we're getting from the passage is this. Healing, speaking spiritually, healing is from the outside in, so living can be from the inside out. Do you get it? God's got to work. God comes from the outside. He works on the inside so that the inside can be fleshed out in your life. Does that make sense? 
All right, that's what we're trying to focus on here today. Um, and about this passage, it's notable for a number of reasons. Uh, uh, the first reason is that uh, of the uh, over 30 recorded healings in the Gospels, uh, at least four of them are blind men. So a pretty high percentage of the healings are, are uh, blind men. And I'll tell you, if you've ever been to a, a third world country or if you've ever seen um, places where there's uh, uh, very little health care, Blindness is a lot more common than it is here. Uh, blindness is uh, something that uh, we, don't, uh, we don't see like other places see. Uh, for instance, my best friend Tim has had a number of torn retinas. And uh, we've talked about this uh, together going, hey, man, um, you wouldn't be living in a nice house in Germantown with a lovely family and kid going to coll- kids going to college and all that stuff uh, if, if, if it were 100 years ago. You'd be sitting on the edge of town on a blanket next to me who couldn't walk, and we would be begging for uh, sustenance. That's what we, that would be our reality. Um, you know, my brother-in-law, who's on staff at Bellevue, has had a number of torn retinas. Uh, Eric Tucker has had eye issues. Lots of people have had eye problems, torn retinas. And, and, uh, so if you've been to a third-world country, you know what that looks like, where people... I, I saw a guy with his eye sewn shut. That was in the United States. His eye was just sewn shut. A very poor guy. Um, had no health insurance, so they just sewed his eyes shut. Um, so all I'm saying to you is that this was a very pr- a commonly seen problem, blindness back then. If you've ever been to a, a f- third world country, flies around eye sockets, buzzing around heads, people with cloudy eyes, very common sight as it was in Jesus' day. The other thing that uh, is, is notable about this whole uh, situation straight away is that at this point in the Gospel of Mark, things change. At this point in the Gospel of Mark, um, there's, a, there's a shift in the story, that there's a shift in the focus. If you look at the last thing Jesus said right before the story, and it's no mistake on the part of the scripture writer, um, the last thing Jesus says is a question. He says to them, do you not yet understand? And the next thing that's recorded after this story is Jesus, uh, this account where Jesus, look at it, verse 27, he's with his disciples. Um, and uh, he asked them at the end of verse 27, who do people say I am? And his disciples say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, you know, because he was beheaded and, uh, you know, he was the one who prepare ye the way of the Lord. He's the one who, uh, you know, called uh, Jesus' uh, uh, ministry, uh, announced it. And, and so some people go, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, come back. Um, they say, they say, others say you're Elijah because there's this Elijah figure that's left us at the end of the Old Testament that's supposed to come, this prophetic uh, person. Um, and uh, some say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them not to tell anybody about it. Now, in Matthew's account of that story, um, it's added, uh, Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so from this point forward in this story, the identity is more on the, on, on, did I, what did I say? On this point forward in the story, the, more, the, the, the focus is more on the identity of Jesus. You know, right beforehand, Jesus is going, you don't even understand, you don't understand. And then Jesus, Peter does understand, and Jesus is going, that's because of the Holy Spirit. And the story shifts, and it focuses on who Jesus is and what he came to do redemptively. All right, so that brings us up to, the, up to speed. Uh, let's go to our first point, which is the faith of the man's friends. If you look at verse 22, it says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. All right, so that we, we 
that seems pretty simple. Some people bring a guy to Jesus and they say, hey, touch him. But there's, there's a lot in that little sentence right there. Um, first of all, some people, what does that mean? I don't know. It just says some people. But very likely, it's people that care about this person, right? Uh, very likely, it's his friends or family. I don't know who else it would be, but friends or family. It's got to be at least friends. They bring this blind man to Jesus. And so they, they, um, they love this relative, and um, they, they care about their friend. And, you know, the other thing is that when we think about Jesus moving from t- place to place in his itinerant ministry... We tend to think, you know, kind of like in the movies, that he's walking and, oh, yes, master. And there are, there are many a private time. There's, there's many private times. Jesus prays. He's alone with the disciples. He takes them to go be alone. But as they're moving through towns, it's not some peaceful situation, oh, where they're just chatting and, oh, look, a blind man. My, these, these friends brought me a blind man. It was, think of, think of the paparazzi pressing in on celebrities that's what they were doing with Jesus. When, when he would come into a, a place, they would push their way in. In fact, um, you don't have to turn, but let me just jump here real quick. You know, in, uh, yeah, in Luke 8, yeah, check this. Um, Jesus uh, is walking along, and uh, people pressed around him. It says that. They pressed around him. That's a... That's a contact word. They pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, people are pressing in on Jesus, and somehow she worms her way in and gets to this Savior in faith and just reaches out and just grabs the hem of his garment. I mean, talk about a... Talk about a simple faith. Um, and so Jesus is being pressed on by all these people, and he says, who was it that touched me? And all denied it. And Peter says, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. And Jesus says, but somebody touched me because he knew that power had left him. Is that amazing? And he says, go, your faith has healed you. But is that not amazing? But anyway, the point is, that's Jesus moving through these situations. He's moving through towns, and the crowd is, is pushing in on him. And so here these people get uh, their friend to Jesus through the crowd. I mean, that's an act, a labor of, of muscular love to get him to Jesus, all right? So you see their, the, the passion of those people. You see, also see the, the uh, economy uh, with which the uh, gospel writer uh, writes here. Look at verse 22 again. Some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now, they don't just say, oh, by the way, if you, could, uh, if you wouldn't mind helping. They beg. They're pleading with Jesus. And it's interesting. They don't make a case for it. They don't say, Jesus, you got to know, this is a very wonderful person, and he's tried to do good deeds all his life, and he's tried to be the best person he could possibly be. Uh, could, you, could you bestow your gifts upon him? They don't do that. They don't plead his case. They just say, will you touch him? They don't even say, will you heal him? They say, Will you touch him? Now, that's a, that's, a great, uh, that's a great application for you, isn't it? I mean, you talk about a desperate and simple faith. They're not trying to give the reasons why Jesus should respond. They're not even telling Jesus how to do it. Can you put your hand on his head and then hold it this way and this? And can you do... They don't, they're not they're trying to instruct him. All they're doing is begging 
Jesus to touch him because it's this simple expression of faith. It's this honest, reliant faith. And uh, that's, a, that's a gospel message for you. That's a gospel message if you're a searching person and you're looking for ultimate answers in this life. You, you don't know all the religious speak. You can't speak in flowery language. No, God, doesn't, doesn't, God doesn't want you to speak in flowery language. He wants a personal relationship with a person because he's a personal God. And the way he made that relationship possible is by sending a personal savior. You've heard that term before. Jesus is a personal savior. The reason he's a personal savior is he took your personal guilt and gives you his personal righteousness so that you're acceptable to this personal God. That's the relationship that God wants with you. But just remember, friends, um, it's got to be a simple, reliant faith without freight, without, well, I've always tried to be good, and well, if I could have an audience, God, it just reaches out and tries to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, it just reaches out and says, will you, just, will you just take me? Will you just heal me? All right, and so a word to you believers, same thing. I mean, it's not to say that you get saved all over again, not at all, but it is to say that that simple, reliant faith, that's the childlike faith. A childish faith is bad. A childish faith is childish, and that's ugly. But a childlike faith reaches out and just says, help me, Jesus. I'm just going to rely on you to help me. All right, next point. The faith of the man. Let's look at verse 22 again. Uh, They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. You see the faith of the man? I don't. Now, he may, have, he may have believed, but you don't see the faith of the man in there, and that's a little suspicious. You know why? Because if you flip the page just a little bit um, to chapter 10, verse uh, 46, there's another blind dude bar- named Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. In the story of blind Bartimaeus, chapter 10, verse 46, uh, there's another story. They come to Jericho, and he was, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, there it is again, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And uh, they're saying, hey, shut up, buddy. Don't you know that Jesus is right here? And he says, he won't stop. Uh, And uh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He will not stop. (laughs) Now, that looks like a pretty... uh, that uh, looks like a guy full of faith. Not sure in our story here today. The, the, the scripture writer doesn't tell much about it. And, uh, you know, you have to ask, uh, does this man believe at all? Uh, that's a pretty good question. Or a bigger question would be, does anybody believe at all? <laughs> Unless God has given them the ability to believe. Uh, you know, in Ephesians 2, it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's a pretty powerful word, dead, isn't it? Seen a dead cockroach? I'm not talking about this guy where he's barely hanging on. I'm talking about this guy, dry. Your dog crunches him. Anyway, we don't live in a dirty house, I know, but you're like, we've never had a cockroach in our house, ever. We live in a house built in the 70s. But anyway, um, but that's, that's a Bible word, dead in your transgressions and sins. You want a Jesus word? Here's a Jesus word. Why do you not understand what I say, he says in John 8? It is because you cannot. How about this one? John 8, verse 46. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them 
is that you are not of God. Well, what hope is there then, ladies and gentlemen, for a dead man? What hope is there for someone that may or may not have faith? Well, let's go to the next point for our application. The next point is the method of the healing Savior. Look what Jesus does. I just love this. The man may or may not have had faith, but it's at least this lovely picture. Jesus, in verse 23, takes the blind man by the hand, and he leads him out of the village. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a very precious thought, isn't it? Precious in a good way. Uh, it's a tender thought. Um, Jesus takes the blind man, and, you know, big crowd. He's in the village. He's in the commotion. He takes the guy by the hand. You know, previously it was his friends leading him along. Now Jesus has him by the hand. He's like, you know what? Tell you what. Let's get out of this mess, and let me take you out of the village. Now, certainly the disciples followed him, and probably a lot of the crowd might have followed him too. But at least they go out of the village, which is probably a fairly sizable walk to get out of that commotion and get to some place so that Jesus can deal with him. And then Jesus does this amazingly personal thing. It's just so tender. Um, he says he takes a blind man by the hand, leads him out of the village, and when Jesus had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, I know that seems so strange and maybe even gross in our culture because we have, you know, sanitizing wipes in the doorway of the Kroger. And so that idea of spitting on somebody's eyes, I mean, it just seems so weird and all that, but think about it. Think about that ancient culture that doesn't think like you or me. Think about what it would be like to not have any vision and all of a sudden you feel Jesus putting something on your eyes. What is it communicating? First of all, it says that Jesus, he, he's, he touches him. I mean, he, he puts something on his eyes, and basically, it's basically saying, um, this is me, okay? This is not anybody else. This is, you're right here. No, you can't see me, but I'm, I'm right here. This is me. This is me touching you, and this is where I'm going to fix you. You see how personal that is? He takes him by the hand takes him to a place out of the crowd, touches him and touches him at the point where he's going to fix him. And, you know, that's just such a, that's the way God works. Um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, you know how he, he was converted? I mean, you know he was a monk, and um, he was doing and doing and doing and doing and trying to, trying to win God's favor. And you know, what, you know what grabbed him? It's this verse, Romans 1.17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. In other words, from beginning to end, it's an issue of faith. It's not, Martin Luther, by doing, 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 doing. It's a matter of faith from beginning to end, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith. That's the thing that God, and it's, it's right where Martin Luther felt it the most. It's, that's right where God touched. It's right where Jesus touched. And how about you? I mean, you think of um, the thing you're most embarrassed about sin-wise. You, you think about that, the, the things from your past that you just go, oh, it's awful. Or you just think about your own spirituality and you go, man, I can't believe I this and I can't believe I that and I can't believe I have such a sin propensity for this. The gospel meets you. The gospel finds you where you are. 
It's a lot like the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6. You know, he has a vision, and he has a vision of the throne room of God. And uh, in fact, we're going to sing, you know, we're going to sing about it today. Holy, holy, holy. And uh, he sees the angelic beings around God saying, holy, holy, holy. And you know what Isaiah's thinking? He says, woe is me. I'm undone. Um, I'm a man of unclean lips. My people are a people of unclean lips. And I've seen the king. And uh, you know what happens? I mean, he's thinking, he's thinking, for him, he's thinking what rolls off my heart rolls off my lips. Uh, I'm a man of unclean lips. And you know what happens? Uh, an angel takes a coal from the fire and touches it. You know where? His lips. I know that sounds weird. It's a vision. But the point is, right where he feels his, his deepest, darkest sin problem is right where God addresses it. And I'm telling you, that's the message of the gospel. The gospel finds you right at your point of deep need. And that's part of this story too. All right. Um, Next point, lesson of the healing action. Um, Verse 23, I love this. Um, So Jesus, uh, he puts the stuff on the guy's eyes and um, he says, do you see anything? And in verse 24, the, the guy looks up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. So apparently this guy wasn't born blind. He'd seen trees before, or at least maybe he was. He knew that they were straight uh, objects. Um, but um, he says, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes again, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, the danger there, ladies and gentlemen, is that we read that, and uh, it gets Christians all nervous because they read that story, and they go, oh, Jesus, it didn't work. I mean, it took extra. It took extra mojo from Jesus. Uh, and maybe his, uh, dev- you know, his magic device uh, healing battery was uh, down, and he had to zap him, the guy again. Wow, look at that. He had to do it twice. Are you kidding? I mean, look at the way Jesus' uh, miracles are recorded throughout the Scriptures. Sometimes he speaks and a thing happens. Sometimes he touches somebody. Sometimes he says, your sins are forgiven. Uh, there's no formula. There's no Harry Potter wand that has to happen. Um, it's, it's intentional what Jesus is doing here. And it's very much, it's intentional on his part, and it's intentional in, on including it on the part of the Scripture writer. He's partly seeing I mean, isn't that what has just happened? I mean, just prior to this, the Pharisees have asked for a sign, and Jesus won't give them one. They asked for a sign before we'll believe in you, Jesus. We want to see some kind of sign, or else we can't believe in you. And what about the disciples? They had seen miraculous signs, a big one, and they still don't believe. There's There's a partly seeing kind of issue here. And uh, that's how the gospel works too. Jesus doesn't heal this guy in two stages because his his power wasn't strong enough or that it was an extra really bad case. It's it's seeing but not really seeing. It's seeing but it's like they look like trees walking. And, uh, you know, what happens next then is a great lesson. Uh, Jesus says, who do, you people, who, do you, uh, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And when Peter says, you are the Christ, um, Matthew adds, you didn't get this from yourself. God enabled you to see that. And so it was a very much a picture of, of searching for the gospel and, and the disciples seeing but not really seeing uh, very much plays into the story of, of Jesus. And so if you want an application for your life, 
whether you're on uh, this side of the cross or this side of the cross. In other words, if you haven't believed yet or if you have believed, um, my advice to you is to sing a song. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. That seemed like a sensible prayer. I commend it to you. Last point, and we're almost done. The shadow of the coming cross. Uh, Back to our passage here. Verse 26, Jesus says an unusual thing to uh, many a reader. He sent them to, uh, he sent the guy to his home. So the healed guy, he says, go to your home. And he says, do not even enter the village. Go home, but whatever you do, don't go back in the village. Now, why would Jesus say that? Well, I mean, the guy is obviously blind. Many people have seen this situation, and Jesus leads this guy out of town, and he does not want this guy going back in town going, hey, look at me. Woo, I can see everybody. Sally. Bob, you got fat. You know, I mean, he, this, he, all of a sudden he can see. Jesus does not want that to happen. You know why? Very simple. His time had not yet come. That's why his time had not yet come. And by the way, at the end of the scene with um, the, the very next chunk where Peter says, you are the Christ, look at verse 30. Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Peter says, you're the Christ. You're right, I'm the Christ. Now, don't tell anybody. Why? His time had not yet come. Now, it's in the shadow of the cross. His time will come, but his time had not yet come. Question of the week then. Um, what did Jesus come to do? I mean, that's what he would say, my time has not yet come. And in John 17, he says, Father, the time has come. High priestly prayer. He's about to be betrayed and be crucified. So the time has not yet come. The time has come. So what was, what was he here to do? What did Jesus do? What was it time for? Well, I got a quick illustration for you. It's a, it's a, it's a video. And if you're a super duper, duper, duper sensitive person, uh, then come up and see me afterward uh, or write my boss. But uh, here's a video for you. Uh, this is real life. Until the water cannon opens up. With its spray, a rotten stench fills the air, leaving protesters soaked and smelly. For the man who filmed these pictures, there's only one way to describe being skunked. I was here and everybody said, oh, shit. everybody was crying. The smell what's the, this is what the people said in the, the same day, yes. Yeah. They throw a on, uh, on us, they th- spray us on and was, uh, everybody was sad and uh, angry. This was the first use of skunk, Israel's controversial new form of crowd control. One of the qualities of this new skunk spray is its ability to linger. It's now six weeks since it was used here at the security barrier in Berlin, and you can still smell it on the air. There's a smell somewhere between dead animal and human excrement. Skunk is revolutionary. It's an organic, non-toxic liquid, but it smells indescribably foul. God, that is absolutely disgusting. Disgusting, yes. I mean, it's nauseating. I, I feel like I want to wretch. And you're saying that is actually drinkable. It's so safe you can drink it? Yeah. 
It's guaranteed to clear an area without risk of casualties, unlike rubber bullets. Israelis say it'll only be used when protests have turned violent. This is an option which is used by the Israeli police, border police, when necessary, if necessary, and will only be used when there are violent protests taking place, and we can effectively stop those protesters from throwing stones or rocks at our police officers. But Palestinians claim it's being used on peaceful protesters and is a degrading form of abuse. When they spray this thing, uh, this bad uh, smell uh, to the people, it uh, makes you feel uh, non-human. Non it's uh, humiliation for the people. What's going on? All right. I want you to know that I'm not trying to shock you with a beeped-out word, and I also want you to know that I'm not some right-wing Christian uh, nut job uh, get, trying to engage in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and talk about how it's bad to spray people. I think it's probably better to spray people with an organic, stinky thing than shoot them. Uh, that's probably better, okay? But my point in showing you that is this, is this thing that he says at the end. I mean, you know, as human beings... Um, we want to separate ourselves as far as possible from waste and stinky, gross, disgusting things. I mean, the only reason you don't throw that baby out is because you love them. Um, and, and I mean, just, and, and just remind them of that, by the way. Uh, when, they're, when they're ornery at 19 and you're paying for their school, just remember about all the poop that you dealt with in their life. Theirs, gross, disgusting. But my point is, it's... it's, it's not natural to not separate yourself from that. And what this guy says at the end, I just found so intriguing. He says, it, it, was, it made us feel like we're not a human. Did you hear him say that? It made us feel like we're not a human, and it was humiliating. And I found that to be such a powerful... I thought about this so many times, and I thought about it in the context of sin. Here we are, these people who have been made on this beautiful earth that God has made, and sin changes everything. And it's like, it's like everything got sprayed with that skunk spray. And it's, it's anti-natural. And it robs of humanity. It robs of the way that we're designed to be, the way that we're designed to function, the way that we're designed to think, the way that we're designed to observe the universe and observe uh, everything that has been made. It changes everything. And it's foul and it's dirty and it lingers and it stays. Um, the, the Bible has an answer for that, and the answer is the Lord Jesus. I mean, imagine if everything foul in your life could be relieved. Imagine if all the stains could be made white. If, imagine if all the things that, that denied you your humanity and put your heart at turmoil could be ultimately repaired. Would that not be the best thing you'd ever heard in your life? I'm telling you. That's the, this story. That's what this book is about, cover to cover. It's not about tolerance and, and looking the other way and all that. It's not, it's not about, it's not trying to impress, oppress people. The, the cover to cover, the, the whole story of this book is how God redeemed a fallen humanity that was denied their own selves. Uh, and God can restore, God can fix, God can cleanse, God can remove the stain and the stink. And he's done it by the righteousness of his own son. Let's thank him. Lord Jesus, um, it's an amazing thing to think about everything from blindness to um, failed knees to failed hearts to failed minds to failed relationships 
to uh, failed intentions. I mean, we, we look back on our lives and wish we had done one thing and we ended up doing another thing. And uh, that's us in our fallen humanity. And we thank you that you provided a way unto yourself that would not only make us eternally right, but make you eternally present. And uh, we appreciate that. And I pray that, uh, again, the truth would have been spoken, but also received here. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.